hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth, the prophet Habakkuk had a conversation with God. And it's pretty much unlike any other one that's been recorded in Scripture. He basically got to sit down with God and say, I don't understand why things are the way that they are. The world around me looks pretty bad. And look at how unrighteous things have become, even with the children of Abraham, even though we claim to be your people under your covenant of love and providence. This is just not right. And it doesn't reflect well on you, God. What are you going to do about it? And while a lot of times we sit down and we have those conversations with God and our questions kind of float up into the air, something really interesting happens. Um, Surprisingly, God responds back. And he says, don't worry, I'm going to set things right. I'll be using the Babylonians up north to accomplish my will soon enough. And this actually creates more problems than solutions for our friend Habakkuk. Because he, he then turns right around and complains again to God and says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That can't be right. How are you going to use people that don't even know who you are that are much more, if I have to create a sliding scale of evil, like Israel's here and they're like at the wall over there. And you're going to use them to bring about justice? That doesn't make any sense. And again, surprisingly, God responds to Habakkuk and he explains himself again. And this is, how, and this is what he says. He says, first off, look. Don't worry. Just because Babylon is being used by me doesn't mean I've chosen them over Israel. Moreover, don't think that this is the end for Babylon, that their, their lack of knowledge for me and their lack of love for me or for humankind is going to get away with, with no justice. They're going to get what's coming to them as well. But more importantly, though, Habakkuk, you need to realize that for now and always, those who are truly righteous, whether they are from Israel or Babylon or anywhere else, those that are truly righteous will have faith in my faithfulness even when they don't understand all of it, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's beyond them, and they will live out of that trust in me that I am the faithful one. Trust that I am able to save and let it drive your life. There you go. You've learned the entire book of Habakkuk in like three minutes. Okay? Never have to read it again. Just kidding. You should read it. It's really good. Hundreds of years later, the Apostle Paul is living in the town of Corinth and he's writing to the church households that live in the great city of Rome. And we think it's probably during the the later part of of the Emperor Claudius's reign. And that's important because toward the end of his reign, the, the, the second part of his reign, there is a problem. Many Jewish people living in Rome have been exiled from the city because of disagreements and political unrest, they think, that have sprung up regarding the claims of a failed Jewish leader. And, and these people that are still like carrying on his revolution, even though he died under strange circumstances. Um, but this guy was named Crestus, and he was leading a rebellion among them. Yeah, that's right. Misunderstanding of who Jesus is. 
both Messianic and Orthodox Jews had been tossed out of the city by Roman leaders who were worried about this big political overturning. And many of the people who are left in the house churches that Paul's writing to are Gentiles. Now, perhaps they're converted God-fearers. They're people like Cornelius, the Roman centurion, who, who had, had learned about the God of Israel, and they had started to follow his way, and then had an encounter with the, with the Holy Spirit, had an encounter with the risen Jesus, and have converted, believed in Jesus. Some of them are probably people who never knew about the God of Israel until they learned about this Crestus, the Messiah, Jesus. But the thing is, there's also still Jewish Christian households there, and Paul's addressing them as well. They're, they're kind of in hiding, but they're still there. Now, growing up, I always heard that Paul was writing to the Roman churches as kind of a fundraising letter, okay? And, and he says plainly toward the end of the letter that he wants to go out to the ends of the earth. I mean, pretty much, he, he kind of, without naming Spain, he names Spain. He wants to get out to Gaul. He wants to get out to the ends of the earth and proclaim the gospel, and that he hopes that they might give him a hand doing that. And, and here in the first chapter earlier, he talks about both this desire to give them a spiritual gift in order to strengthen them and that he might receive a harvest from them just as he had the other Gentile churches. Now, whether that's a harvest of souls or whether that's a harvest of funds, probably both. I mean, because Paul is always about proclaiming the gospel. And so while that idea of it kind of being, of at least like kind of establishing some mission and doing some networking and some of those things, that might be true to some degree. To say that Paul is writing the letter to the Romans, I mean, what is tantamount to many people throughout the history of the church, basically is theological masterpiece, right? The most complete construction of his understanding of the gospel ever just to finance a mission trip, probably overreaching a little bit, okay? Because Paul's doing what Paul always does. He's helping people imagine and understand what it means to live in the resurrected life of Jesus. And for Paul, that means, that means more than just preaching. It means exploring the reality of, that God revealed to Habakkuk all those many years ago. For now and always, the righteous live by faith in the faithful one. Now, if I'm really going to claim that idea, I need to understand the implications. And in a very, very short space in our text here this morning, Paul tells us where he's going to be planning on going through the whole book of Romans. It's kind of a it, it's, it's three or four verses, but it, it lays the entire foundation for the whole book. Um, scholars who work in rhetoric, they call it the propositio or the proposition. And basically, if you're, if you're, if you're writing in the ancient Greek rhetoric, you lay out your proposition at the, be, at the beginning, and then you spend the whole rest of your time like proving the proposition and then talking about its implications. And if you look at Romans, that's pretty much what he does. As he spends the entire, he spends a big bulk of the time talking about what does it look like today now that Jesus has come, now that Jesus has died for us, now that Jesus has risen, what does it look like to be, to live, to embody this idea, the righteous will live by faith. And we're going to be journeying 
this summer through the book of Romans. And so in some ways, this is kind of an introductory sermon, okay? Like, if it feels like I'm going to kind of be skimming across key points, it's because I am. We're going to be coming back to them and digging deeper into them throughout the course of the summer. But, but just to kind of help you see the scope of what Paul's talking about and see the, the depth of what he's saying in just these very, very few sentences and how, and how it just kind of powers the rest of the letter and hopefully what we're going to be able to pull out of it as a church. I think the first thing that we need to understand in order to make a claim that the righteous live by faith is that we have to decide where that faith is located. Okay, people have faith in lots of things these days, okay? Just like people had faith in lots of things back when this letter was written. There were a host of different deities that you could choose from, like a big buffet line, okay? And all of them were transactional. I have faith in you, I give you this, you give me that, You know, I I give you this sacrifice, you give me good crops. I give you this sacrifice, you give me healthy children. I give you this sacrifice, you give me health and wealth and well-being, okay? And we have a great, you know, barter exchange going on with the supernatural here. That's kind of the way it worked. Now, here's the thing. We, We may like our gods a little bit more civilized, but we do the same thing today. Our world invests in ideas and principles and philosophies in the same way. I invest in this. I expect this kind of return. I I invest in hard work. I expect a good return. I invest in wealth and security. I expect it to take care of me. I invest in, you know, like good networking. I expect that I'm going to have good status and reputation. You, know, you name it, whatever it is. But ultimately, a lot of that boils down to faith in self. Faith in me. Faith in my ability. Faith in my skills. Faith in my ability to control my environment. And, and some of that can be, you know, and, and faith in my own understanding of life. Sometimes that can be clothed in some self-focused spirituality or religion. But for most of the world that we live in, it is just undisguised, simple self-theology. And it goes like this. Life is what you make of it. That's what most people have faith in around us. Maybe here. You know, we may have clothed it in Christianity, but, I mean, ultimately, our faith may be placed in life is what you make of it. We need some God on the side, but ultimately life is what you make of it. And while faith like that may make us feel a little bit better in our day-to-day, we've, we've checked off church, we've done our thing, we're doing good, and, and now we can go and, and make life what we make of it now that we have, you know, we've bartered with God, we've given him our Sunday, and he has given us whatever it is that we wanted in exchange for our Sunday. The problem is, is when we start to hit the big questions of life, like where did we come from and where are we going, and probably the most important one that we overlook until it hits us square in the eyes, how do you actually measure the value of a life? Well, when we hit those kind of questions, the kind of faith that sits inside of you and me or that's just located in you and me, faith in myself with a little bit of God on the side, or faith in my ability to have a great transactional relationship with God, well, that starts to show its gaps and its lack of integrity pretty quickly. You can't actually live and die 
with that kind of faith. You can get by, but it's not going to work. And I think the most important point of the gospel of Jesus is that it locates itself outside of you and I. Okay, Paul identifies himself at the beginning of the letter as a servant of Christ Jesus. That word is interchangeable with slave or prisoner even, okay? depending on how you look at it. This word doulos, you, it can go either way. We like to nicen it up because we don't like the word slave. Okay, but in essence, he said, my life has been bought and I am no longer my own. I am now a slave to Christ Jesus called to be a proclaimer and set apart for the good news of God. And he goes on to list the features of this good news that he's called to proclaim. That Jesus is a descendant of David, and he is the Messiah. He takes care of all of the fulfillment of the law, and that the Holy Spirit is on him with power, and that's been evidenced by his resurrection from the dead, and that he has been given all authority in the entire universe by God to be called Lord of all. That's the gospel, he says. That's the good news. And it's out of that identity and power of Jesus, Paul says, that he and the people who are part of his ministry have received both their grace, that is their fuel for living, and apostleship, their purpose and their calling in life. He said, so I've got the, I, have, I have now received the answers to where I come from, where I'm going, and what the value of my life is, but it's not located in me, it's located in Christ. That's the only place I can locate those things. And then he widens the circle and he says, and you also are a part of that. Any of those who will receive the call to belong to Jesus. See, it's this gospel that actually lives up to its name, that actually is good news, because it's actually able to accomplish those things that we are so desperately trying to accomplish for ourselves, but are unable to do. That's probably the, I mean, that's probably the most important point that Paul makes right off the bat, is that it is in Christ alone, our beginning, our ending, our purpose, our value, that is where those things are located, and you cannot find them anywhere else and you say yeah no that's great I've heard those sermons before you haven't told me anything that I don't know already okay great because this is not about telling us anything brand new this is about like reawakening those things that we may have forgotten sometimes because let's be honest I can know up here that my beginning and my end and my purpose and my value are found in Christ Jesus alone and I can't find that anywhere else but I forget that on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday or any day ending why okay i i do you do we do we need to be reminded of this this is not just a this is not just a gospel that saves us theoretically this is a gospel that we either live or don't live out of and a gospel that we need to continually be striving to live out of Right, And that's why I think it's really important that we hear Paul's, the thing that he puts right on the end of that, where he talks about this grace and this apostleship that I've been given, and then he drops right into this. I am not ashamed of this gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. 
We might believe in the gospel, but we often act like we're ashamed of it. I mean, it's easy to do, okay? The Christian gospel, the notion that someone dies and rises from the dead and secures the salvation of humanity is strange. It is not natural. If I'm in Habakkuk's shoes and God tells me this is how he's going to save the world, don't worry, I've got it covered, I'm going to do this, I go, that makes no sense. That doesn't make any sense. You're sending the righteous to the slaughter in in the hands of the unrighteous, and you're saying that somehow that's going to bring righteousness? That doesn't make any sense. And God says, you're going to have to trust me on this one. Because that's what the righteous do, is they trust me on this one. And and in our world, the the Christian gospel is is mocked and sneered at and dismissed regularly. It's been that way all the way through history, but it's happening with more increasing frequency in our culture today. I mean, at best, we are quaint and we are old-fashioned and possibly out of touch. At worst, we're bigots bordering on the insane. I've heard that a few times, too. And while part of me wants to get up and shout at the TV screen at the Westboro guys holding signs like, okay, I'm not a part of them. That's not who I am. That is not the gospel I'm devoted to. You know what the bigger part of me wants to do? Just huddle up with my Christian friends and keep my faith as secret as possible. Okay? Because I've got my belief and, and I've got my salvation and I'm good. And you've got your belief and you've got your salvation and we're all good and we're all here and we're all huddled on Sunday. Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. The problem is is that that's not what the gospel does. And that's not what Paul says the gospel's for. Okay? And, And the Christians in Rome had that same temptation. It was just magnified. It wasn't just unpopular to claim the gospel of Jesus. It was a risk to your health and well-being. Their home is the home of the most powerful man in the world, whose titles include Son of God, whose birthday was hailed as gospel, good news, and who claimed the allegiance and the loyalty of the greatest empire the world had ever seen with their city, Rome, as its crown jewel. And yet there is this subversive good news of Jesus that claims that King Jesus is the true king. He is the world's rightful Lord, not Caesar, and that it is Jesus' government that knows no end and his reign that knows no bounds, not Caesar. Okay, that's not just codified as alternative news or alternative facts by the powers of the day. That's codified as high treason. That gets you killed. That doesn't get you slandered. It doesn't get you mocked. It doesn't get you called old-fashioned or bigoted or insane. It gets you killed. Okay, so what's a Roman Christian to do? Practice their faith in a way that's as quiet and as unobtrusive and as least disruptive as possible? That sounds like a pretty good idea. And Paul says, never, never. Paul uses the words, I am obligated, I am 
eager I am unashamed to describe the life and the task of proclaiming this good news of Jesus. And throughout the letter, he keeps teasing these characteristics out of his audience, right? Look at the progression. He says, look at the depth of your need, he says. And then he says, look at how the greatness of God's work in Christ has satisfied your needs. Now look at how he's reconciled the Jew and the Gentile, how he's brought the whole world into contact with his good news. Look at how amazing that is. Now look at how you embrace your marching orders as a fellow slave and proclaimer of this good news. That's kind of the flow of the whole letter right there, too. Obligated, eager, unashamed. I mean, those are the exact traits that I pray daily for you, Shelburne Street Church of Christ, to exhibit in regard to the gospel of Jesus. But why would we be so motivated to do that? Because of the thing that's attached to Paul's statement. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because this gospel has the power for salvation. This word salvation, it's so, it's so big. It's so, it's so wide. We lose so much of it when we translate it into English because we think of salvation as a point, as, as, a, as a thing that's like fixed on a timeline. You know, and, and, and maybe, maybe when you think of salvation, you think of something that's in the past, right? Like, I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's all the way back when, when God spoke to Abraham and said, you know, at one of your descendants will bring the salvation of the world. Or maybe, maybe in Moses where he's like, in, in, in my word is salvation. Or, or, or maybe later on it's, it's, it's at Christ and, and the act of the cross and the death and the resurrection. You're like, okay, that's, that's when salvation happened or maybe you've been led to believe that salvation is, is tied to an act that you participate in in your lifetime, a decision that you make. Maybe it's when you, you prayed a prayer or when you accepted Christ in your heart or where you, when you participated in the act of baptism or, or any other one of these accepting decision points. And you say, okay, that's when salvation happens. That's the salvation. This is the power of salvation. It's right here. Dink that point on the timeline. Or maybe for you, salvation is not, we're not there yet. Like salvation's out in the front. It's that thing that's coming down the road when God finally hastens the return of Jesus and, and he comes back and he makes all of this right again. That, that that's going to be the salvation point when this is all finished. And I've got news for you. When, when, when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power that saves us. He is using a word for salvation that encompasses all of it. Salvation is the thread running through the history of humanity all the way from first to last, from faith to faith. Right? And his point is, 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 that, is that quite simply, this gospel's power is a salvation across all time. It's the crucial feature of history. It is the present reality of the disciple. And it is the future hope of the universe, all wrapped in one. For those who follow God's advice to Habakkuk and live by faith, we have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved all at the same time. 
we live in this constant power of transformation, this movement toward the perfect. And there's no power that can compare to that. There, there is no other promise of salvation offered anywhere that comes close. And so we should not only be obligated, but, but eager, excited, and unashamed to proclaim that gospel so loudly in our lives. And this is also crucial to understanding the last piece of what Paul wants to accomplish in his letter to the churches here. He keeps using these words all and every to widen the circle of the gospel in the first chapter. He talks about the obligation to preach to both the, he, and he uses these words Greek and barbarian, you know, like the cultured and the uncultured, the well-mannered and the rude. And he talks about the wise and the foolish. He keeps widening the welcome to the table of the Savior. He keeps opening the circle wider and wider and wider. But then in verse 16, he really shows his cards. The gospel is the power for salvation for all who believe. First the Jew and then the Gentile. The righteous, whatever their background, are not just saved by faith in the gospel of Jesus. They continually live together in the reality of faith in that gospel. See, here's the thing. There is a schism in the churches in Rome. Or at least maybe like a fraying at the edges. Jewish Christians are huddling amongst themselves. They are afraid to show themselves for fear of exile. But even more so, they are probably still clinging to the idea that they are still somehow elevated above their Gentile contemporaries. We were here first. We're, we're long-standing members, right? And the Gentile Christians, on the other hand, they're quite content to leave their Jewish counterparts behind. I mean, after all, isn't Christianity something else entirely than Judaism now? And, and isn't the current exile just proof that God's turning away from the Israel of old and embracing the new Israel of the church? They say. And, and even if we didn't have this whole Jew-Gentile problem, what about all the other social issues involved with us gathering together and, and trying to be this community, this church, this people called out? They're, these house churches, they undoubtedly have patrons, both Jewish and Gentile, that are wealthy estate owners. And they're more than glad to host the church and receive due honor for doing so because that's the way that society works. Obligation and honor. But here's the thing. You now have slaves and castless members and foreigners and women and all kinds of people that are coming into the church... And they're coming to Jesus. And what is at stake in your honor when you are asked to treat the slave as your brother? When you're asked to elevate a woman to the same level as man. When you're asked to elevate a foreigner to the same level as a Roman citizen. When, when you are asked to actually live out this idea that all have become one in Christ Jesus. That's messy. That's hard. We all come to Jesus on a level playing field, says Paul. That's the power of the gospel, is that it both diminishes our own claims for righteousness, and it elevates us because of Christ's righteousness. It takes away any claim that you have for your own righteousness and gives you Jesus instead. The same Spirit saves us all, the same Spirit dwells in all of us, but that same spirit is also making of us a new community, one that lives in the same faith 
in which we are saved. And that means that one person or one group of people cannot in any way elevate themselves over any other in the family of God. We don't have the right to anymore. Because we abandoned all that when we embraced the power of the gospel that actually saves. And for the Gentiles, that means accepting the fact that God has granted them faith from a Jewish faith long before them, all tied to the faithful one. For the Jews, that means accepting the Gentiles fully because the faithful one has already accepted them. For all of them, it means starting to construct a faith out of their faith, constructing a society that filters all of the concepts of race or gender or economics or social status through grace and salvation that is transforming each and every one of them. And when I think about it, those are actually surprisingly modern issues, aren't they? It's not stuff that they're messing around with and having problems with 2,000 years ago. We're having problems with that right now. We are still prone to making judgments and separating the body of Jesus based on whether you are male or female, whether you are younger or older, whether you are richer or poorer, whether you are three months a visitor or a third generation member, whether your particular sin is more or less socially acceptable or more or less visible. Those are the ones that are just off the top of my head. I keep going if you want me to. You don't want me to keep going. Okay, got it. I'll stop. That's fine. You get my point. But Paul's challenge to them needs to be heard to us today. The gospel contains a power for salvation for us, but it also contains his justice. A putting right of the world that doesn't start after we die and Jesus returns. It starts with us dying today and living as Jesus now. That's the, that's the root of his justice. And the power of that justice should be seen first and foremost in the community of the church, the way that we treat each other here and the way that we move out of here and begin to treat our world as proclaimers of the gospel. Habakkuk was faced with this great catastrophe coming on Israel. And in the midst of it, he had to learn to hold on and trust God, to have faith in his faithfulness, even though the methods didn't always look right. Now, on the contrary, they, they challenged him and they stretched him considerably. It was hard for him to get out these words, even though the fig tree doesn't bud and, and there's no fruit on the vines and nothing looks like it's going well, I will still trust you. I will let you stretch me because you say that is where my righteousness and where my life is found. And if you fast forward to Paul, when the same faith in God's faithfulness grabbed a hold of a man named Saul and changed into Paul, that was not an easy change. There was a confession of sin, there was a humbling of pride, there was, there was a weakness and a blindness and a reliance on a faith community to embrace him and teach him how to live in this new faith as a follower of Jesus. He had to throw it all away like trash in order to embrace Jesus, he says. And as he writes to the churches in Rome, and I, and I believe through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he stretches that all who have faith to extend out to you and I today... He urges us to take that same position. It is going to be hard. It is not going to make sense. When I say offer your bodies as living sacrifices, that's not a theoretical thing. It probably is going to feel like a sacrifice. It is. 
But it's worth it because of this gospel. In Jesus, God has shown himself to be faithful to the covenant promises from the beginning. And those who will believe and embrace that reality are going to find themselves embraced by a great salvation. A salvation that's full of power to live in the resurrected reality of Jesus. Not just as individuals by ourselves, but as a resurrected, empowered community of believers. His church. Even when it looks different, even when it's costly, even when it runs at cross purposes with all of your natural inclinations, it is still the gospel of power that saves. And you and I, as part of that first to last from faith to faith, are still called to be people who eagerly embrace this obligation, which is more like joy than duty, and who eagerly declare unashamed that this is still the good news. Amen? Amen.